Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Stephanie Drimmer, an award-winning author of nonfiction children's books for National Geographic Kids and a few other publishers. Today, Stephanie brings us a beautiful and educational book that I feel is going to thrill kids, but also their parents and grandparents and teachers and everyone around them. And we can all have such fun together. Stephanie is here to share with us National Geographic's 5,000 Amazing Facts About Animals. Stephanie Drimmer, good morning and thank you for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me. You and I were just commenting uh, prior to recording our conversation that we hadn't spoken all that long ago, and it was really as summer began. So we're kind of bookends, the beginning of summer and the end of summer. (laughs) That's right, we are. (laughs) And you have spent the summer obviously working because here we have another stunning book from National Geographic for Kids. This one, 5,000 Amazing Facts About Animals. What fun is that? So much fun. I love these fact books. Um, Nat Geo does a ton of them every year. Um, They're really, really popular with kids. I think kids love just being able to pick up a book and flip through it and pick out an amazing fact here or there, you know, impress their friends, stump their parents, and kind of flip on to the next thing. (laughs) They are it's it's almost mind-boggling how many of these facts there are, like 5,000. And, and that's, I think, only a drop in the bucket, really, in terms of, of what's known about these animals and, and our planet. So I, to choose these and assemble them is just an amazing piece of work. Yeah, so the, the Nat Geo tone is weird but true. Um that's the parameter for anything that goes in one of these books. You know, there are a lot of facts out there that are interesting or amazing, but in order to qualify to get into this book, uh, it has to be weird but true. So I can give you a couple of my favorite facts from the book. Oh, yes. uh, If you'd like. (laughs) Please. Okay, a couple quick ones. Um, A black mamba snake, which is one of the deadliest snakes on the planet, can slither faster than a human can run. Um, that's just terrifying to me. Um, the ants of one particular species will explode when they sense a threat to their colony. Um, pretty crazy stuff. And here's a super spooky one. Um, there's an expert who estimates that mosquitoes have killed about half of all humans who have ever been born. So in the history of humanity, about half of us have been killed off by uh, by mosquitoes, which is you know another reason to dislike them. That that one really is so astounding. It's it is hard to believe it's true. It is, and of course, you know this is uh, this is one person's estimate, and it could be a little bit off. But I think the the overall point is that mosquitoes are responsible for and just absolutely astounding number of human fatalities. You know, we're sort of living in their world, if you think about it. Right, exactly. And I can think of just off the top of my head with malaria, because that's uh, mosquitoes are the ones who... Tr- what transport malaria mm-hmm. right yeah that's right and and to think of the people I, it's been an epidemic in some countries so i guess that really isn't too far from the truth 
Right. Yeah. Once you think about it, makes sense. Yes. Oh, no wonder we don't like those pesky, pesky mosquitoes. But I must say (laughs) that here in the Northwest, I very rarely have uh, encountered a mosquito. How about you, Stephanie? That's right. Yeah, I think we're we're a bit of neighbors up here, and we do see them a little bit in the summer, but uh, nothing like I think uh, people in the South experience with those those giant sized mosquitoes. Right, or you get into some uh, sometimes the hot northern areas. Um, well, this isn't that far north, but I I lived in Manitoba as I was growing up. Oh, mosquitoes were horrible, and they you would even have the city coming out and doing the smoking kind of thing to try and and you know really uh, keep that population uh, reasonable at least. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, we humans are fighting back, but I think the, the mosquitoes have won on the scale of, of history. <laughs> they have. So those are the kinds of things we can find uh, in this wonderful new book, Nat Geo's for Kids, the 5,000 Amazing Facts About Animals. So 5,000 versus what did you just uh, share with us about four or five, Stephanie? That's right. There's a, a lot more where that came from. And, you know, uh, there were a lot of facts because they're just little snippets that um, have really interesting backstories that we just didn't have room to include in the book. So, um, for example, one of my favorite facts in the book is that a grizzly bear's bite is strong enough to crush a bowling ball, which is just totally you know, astounding. But what we didn't have room to go into is it doesn't even have the strongest bite on the planet. Um, that title actually goes to the saltwater crocodile. And it's sort of hard to comprehend um, how strong these bites are, but you can compare it to yourself. You know, you or I, we might bite into like a steak with about 200 pounds of force per square inch uh, or PSI. A, a grizzly bear clocks in at about 1,000 PSI. So that's enough to crush a bowling ball. But a saltwater crocodile blows them out of the water. It, its bite force is about 3,700 psi. So imagine the weight of a rhinoceros pressing down on a single square inch of your skin. That's just how strong it is. Um, no wonder they're such deadly predators. And then, you know, when I was learning this, of course, I wondered, well, how did they figure this out? And it turns out the researchers sort of had to wrestle with the crocodiles to try to get them to bite onto this device that they made to measure the their bite force. And they described the device as a very expensive, very durable, waterproof bathroom scale. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. It definitely is. But And as you were explaining that, Stephanie, and thinking about the rhinoceros and how massive it is, that then suggests that the crocodile, the saltwater crocodile, could actually attack and devour a rhinoceros. Could it? Uh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah probably could. Oh, no. Oh, okay. We <laughs> No wonder we really fear crocodiles and we don't want to be around them, saltwater or freshwater. Yeah, there's a reason. Yes, for sure. So expanding from there, what else really intrigued you in this new book? Um, you know, kids tend to love gross facts, um, and I think all of us kind of secretly do, or, or not so secretly. One of my favorite facts in the book is that wombat poop is cube-shaped. 
Um, wombats are these incredibly cute, furry marsupials. They live in Australia. They're adorable, but they poop cubes. And nobody was really, nobody was really sure why. And um, scientists really still don't know why they do it. But the theory is that, you know, like many animals, wombats use their poop to communicate with each other. And um, if you're a wombat and you poop on a rock or a log, well, if it's shaped like a cube, it doesn't roll away. And uh, mm-hmm. your little message can stay there for another wombat to come by and check out. So while we don't totally know why this bizarre thing happens, um, that is the theory. Mm-hmm. So then... Um... I have to wonder, does that mean their intestines are maybe square-shaped? Oh, there is a whole complex physics behind it. I don't think they're exactly square-shaped, but there's this extremely unique way that they work that is unlike anything else on Earth. And um, engineers are actually studying it right now as a to learn from as a potential new way to manufacture cube-shaped things. <laughs> Again, this is the animal world leads us in terms of natural th- ways of doing things uh, really teach us how to move forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That is a whole field of study, uh, biomimicry, where scientists, you know, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, they look to nature and think, well, how can we do what the animal kingdom has already figured out how to do? And so they'll look at you know, octopuses to figure out how to make robots that are super, super squishy and bendy and can get into tight corners or geckos to look at, figure out how how robots can sort of climb sheer walls, Um, just all kinds of amazing animal abilities. Yes. So we're cross-referencing here because that was uh, part of a conversation that we had earlier in the summer uh, in the ultimate book of the future. Oh, yeah, that's right. That does come up. Yes. So that was interesting. And and when you're talking about the um, animal poop and leaving messages, I think I noticed that, uh, I think it's the rhinoceros does something similar. Um, Probably a lot of animals do that. The rhinoceros fact that comes to mind from the book is, that uh, they make an unusual sound when they're content that researchers describe as wonk. (laughs) (laughs) I like that sound, wonk. (laughs) There's a a good feeling about that. (laughs) Definitely. So let's see. uh, But we were talking about kind of the things that are on the disgusting side of it because I I do think, um, as you did say, Stephanie, that kids really kind of like the things that are real, that might make you want to throw up or just really screw up your face. So uh, did something else come to mind in terms of that? Oh, gosh, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, Let's see. Well, this isn't particularly gross, but koala fingerprints are so similar to humans that um, it's possible that they could be confused at a crime scene. (laughs) Oh, oh. (laughs) So watch out if there are koalas around. That's right. (laughs) There was one fact that I came across and I thought, oh, kids would would like this because it is kind of icky. And this was about flies. And that they actually vomit on their food before they eat it. Like, oh, yuck. 
Yeah, yeah. So if you see a fly land on your sandwich, that makes it even more disgusting. Um, an even weirder thing is that flies taste with their feet. So if you can imagine having taste buds on your hands um, when a fly lands on food, it can actually, you know, get a little sense of it, get a little taste before it eats it. Oh, yes. So for both reasons, get rid of those flies around us. <laughs> and and right. yet they do serve a purpose. So everything, you know, in terms of balance in nature. Sure. Yeah. You know, flies are pollinators that help pollinate crops and flowers just like bees are. Um, and so even though they're really gross, they do serve a purpose. Yeah. So that brings me to a point um, as I would, and we've talked a little bit about rhinoceroses and how, you know, thinking of their population and how all aspects of life on the planet is so important in terms of of balance, but that this was really amazing. Uh, Just 100 years ago, there were a half a million rhinos on the planet, and now there's less than 30,000? Yeah, very sad. You know, we're, we're... Unfortunately, causing the extinctions of a lot of a lot of animals, especially you know the charismatic large animals, polar bears, uh, white rhinos, uh, that kind of thing. So hopefully, we can figure out a way to put a stop to it. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that this a book like this, these National Geographic books, really are a great way to bring that attention and thus education to all of us, regardless of age, but certainly with the with kids, really instilling that in them and seeing the beauty and the value and the necessity of all parts of the species on the planet. That, that helps, I think, to, to move to a better future, possibly. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can't care about animals that you don't know anything about. Um, and so it's important to not just get familiar with the animals in your backyard, although, of course, that's a lot of fun, but to um, get a sense of all of the animals that exist across our Earth and, you know, especially in the oceans, which is uh, something that most of us really don't get to see. But, you know, there's a whole world down there of jellyfish and sea turtles and octopuses and whales, incredible animals that are really important for the health of our planet in general. Um, And I think when you have a book like this, it can sort of open up new worlds to you and teach you about uh, animals and parts of the world that maybe you uh, weren't thinking about before. So thinking about the oceans and life there, there's just this amazing section on coral and the coral reefs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Coral reefs are are absolutely incredible. And a lot of people don't realize that um, coral reef, a coral reef is just the sort of house for an animal that lives inside of it. Uh, Coral reefs are, are literally alive and they grow over time. It's so, I was fascinated. So these are things that are so new to me and I've already lived a a lot of life. So I I can't imagine really being a kid and hearing this, but but it fascinates me and, and amazes me right now to think about like the Great Barrier Reef in Australia is a half a half a billion, yes, 500,000, half a 
million, 500,000 years old. Yeah, yeah. Coral reefs um, have been around for, yeah, a long time, um, since the dinosaur days. And uh, hopefully they'll be around for a lot longer. But, you know, that's one of the things that we're seeing disappear really fast. Yes. Again, the, the, um, I can't think specifically of what's been said in recent times about that the Great Barrier Reef in itself, but that it is actually deteriorating. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, this is also off the top of my head, so I could be wrong, but I believe about half of it is gone, which is really sad to think about. Um, this is one of the Earth's most fantastic resources. I mean, uh, reefs are where uh, a lot of fish go to be born, raise their babies, their sanctuaries, um, full of food for marine life. Um, And coral reefs are also an untapped resource. There are several medications, including, I believe, a cancer medication that have come from compounds discovered in coral reefs. And this is something that we're just beginning to explore so, you know, it's just really an incredible resource worth preserving. Absolutely. And part of the destruction, I guess it it's perhaps just environmental, the pollution of our oceans. But is there another way, do you know, Stephanie, of how th- so much of it has already deteriorated? Uh, it's climate change is the number one reason. Number one reason uh, coral reefs are incredibly delicate, and so just a small amount of warming um, can cause what's called coral bleaching, which is actually the tiny animals that live inside the reef. Um, they leave the coral, and um, the you know they leave just sort of the dead structure behind, and so that's yeah that's the main cause. And actually, if that is their habitat. When it's gone, that that's going to mean all of the the sea life that depends on it is going to also be dying off. Right. Yeah. And um, there are some scientists doing amazing things with sort of creating artificial reefs, um, well, where they'll sink structures that can provide a refuge for for animals to kind of keep that ecosystem in play. Um, and, you know, there's actually a lot of shipwrecks uh, from throughout human history that have become sort of artificial reefs for um, for marine life. So that's a pretty cool thing. You can go look up pictures or, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to scuba dive somewhere, you can go check it out for yourself. And you can see these old warships that are just covered with uh, with with plants and, and fish and, you know, things just kind of taking over what used to be a, a human object. So while we don't want things, natural things, nature to deteriorate, uh, it is wonderful that we have the ingenuity and and the passion of a lot of people to to want to recreate and, and try to save as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are so many people who are invested now and know we know so much more than we did now. And it makes me hopeful for the future. Right. And so once again, these books from Nat Geo Kids really are are a big part of that, of making kids aware and get them intrigued. and, And they just want to do all they can to make a difference and and do good in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, these books are a great way to inspire kids into going into STEM careers, you know, science, engineering, tech, all of these fields um, are just fantastic, exploding industries that kids today are going to have a great opportunity to go and work in. And um, I think, you know, we'd all love our kids to be super interested in science and tech from the get-go. Not all kids are, um, but these books, um, these fact books are really a great way to kind of spark that in your kids. You know, they're especially great for reluctant readers, um, kids who maybe aren't the type to sit down with a chapter book and read it cover to cover. Well, they can pick up these fact books, flip through them, um, you know, and learn a few interesting things here or there. It's not such a huge barrier, not a huge obstacle for them as, you know, a really dense text heavy book. And so it can be a way to sort of break in kids who are maybe not huge readers and encouraging them to get comfortable with books and reading and hopefully springboard them into, um, you know, reading bigger and longer books. Yes, finding this area that they have a particular fascination with at a particular time and and then going to the library or going online and doing a lot more research and, and finding out more information, that is uh, that kind of learning and education is something you just, you can't buy. Yeah, I think, you know, you raise a good point about sort of meeting kids where they are. Um, and you can't you can't really force anyone to be interested in in something, you know. So I think you kind of have to see what piques your kids' interest and and try to encourage that. So you know maybe they don't. We're you know we're going back to kids who are more reluctant readers. You know maybe they don't love reading traditional books, but they like graphic novels. Great, take them to the library, get some graphic novels. You know, maybe they're not into chapter books, but they love these fact books. Awesome. Get them some fact books. Maybe they're not into reading at all, but they're, they like robots. Get them in a coding class. You know, it's all of these um, interests feed into each other, right? So um, if you become interested in one thing, it can open up a whole new world to you. And you might find that it leads you to something else. Um, or leads you into a deeper topic. And um, I think just anything that your kids are interested in can be like a great way for them to learn. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all, all of it you can just play off of by paying attention and, and kind of doing a little bit of steering and introducing other things. And certainly in a book such as this, 5,000 Facts, there has to be at least a couple of things that pique an interest and then we can kind of do a little more deeper exploring. Yeah. And, you know, these facts are really, um, Nat Geo really has a, a voice and a, a take on how kids learn. And for a book like this, that um, the barometer is weird but true. So, you know, there are so many facts out there. A lot of them are interesting or amazing. But in order to qualify to fit in this book, a fact has to be weird but true. And that is just a tried and true formula for grasping kids' attention. So, you know, these books really are tailored to um, tailored to kids and tailored to uh, presenting information in a way that will spark their curiosity. And it continues to spark mine, as I've mentioned. So here's the thing about honeybees. 
we we see the bees around us and we know they too are endangered. But to read that there are three million hairs on a honeybee's body. Three million. I mean, this thing isn't very large. How can there be three million, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. That That's an incredible fact. Um, I think the the furriest animal on Earth is uh, a sea otter, and I believe it has about a million hairs per square inch. Um, and I just, that, that, I don't know how that's possible. It's totally amazing. Yeah, I know. It, it just boggles the mind how, how microscopic or, or so very fine that must be to get a million in that. Oh, and then in terms of fur, I was, I read in there about the polar bear and how the polar bear hair is hollow. It's hollow. Yeah, they are. Their polar bear hairs are actually translucent. You can see right through them. So we think of polar bears as white, but they're actually not. They're clear. And really what creates that white color is the snow and ice around them. Isn't that just amazing? That must be why when you see them kind of in an aquarium situation in this area, this the fur looks almost yellowish. And that has to be because of... it being translucent, so what's around them is not white, and therefore it's going to be a little off color. Right, probably. Yeah. but And there, too, we're talking about an endangered species that uh, is really heartbreaking because as the sea ice melts and it affects all of their eating habitat, it's, it, that is a very scary situation. Yeah, so polar bears are actually considered marine mammals, which I find really interesting. Um, just like uh, just like a whale is a marine mammal, polar bears are completely dependent on sea ice. Sea ice is, of course, you know, there's no land underneath it. It's just ice pack, frozen water. And so like a whale, they are marine mammals that need the ocean to survive. Yes, and so there too I read where they normally... Uh, will eat uh, a seal blubber. And there, too, the the seal population is decreasing and they don't have access uh, to that food and and they have to eat a lot. Right, yeah. I think they're having to travel uh, really far to to find prey, to find seals to eat, and um, sometimes they're not able to do that. It It is really sad. It's one of the you know, sort of flagship species for climate change. Yes. But an interesting thing about that I read was that that the bear, the polar bear, can smell a seal 20 miles away. Yeah, and they're just absolutely incredible predators. <laughs> it's it's so astounding, just these na- facts of, about the, uh, about these, creatures on our planet. Uh, And while the barrier reef, the coral reefs are also creatures as we've established. And to just think about how intricate they are is, well, like mind-blowing because of how huge it is and how intricate and very specific. it's, It's so, so awesome. It really is. Yeah, the the world is a totally astounding place. I've done 
a lot of these books for Nat Geo, and it just still blows my mind every time I, I write and research one of these. There's just so much out there to learn, and it's the kind of thing where the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. Yes, exactly. And and so here, in, in this one book, and there are multiples of these from Nat Geo Kids, here, 5,000 different facts about the earth and the creatures that inhabit it and how that interacts with us and, and what we need to do to preserve this. Um, you know, as we've already shared, Stephanie, right? The, the, Exposing our kids to these books is probably the greatest gift that we can really give them. Yeah, I think that's quite a compliment, and I think I think it's true. I think that um, it, it sparking kids' curiosity in the world is is like you said the best gift that you can give. Yes, and you know here we are <laughs> getting into the last months of the year. Not too soon to be thinking about special gifts for special someone's, and uh, so this is a wonderful gift book. Oh, absolutely! Uh, it's a beautiful sort of coffee table size hardcover book with gorgeous illustrations. Um, and uh, I mean, Nagio, they just, I'm not involved in the design side, so I feel free to brag about it. But <laughs> designers just do an absolutely incredible job. And Nagio is known for its amazing photography, and there are just tons of super cool photos in the book. Well, I think it's fine to, to really brag about the content as well, what you choose and how you present it, because again, we've we've talked about a lot a lot of it, and yet that's barely scratching the surface of what's inside. So uh, once again, you've done an amazing work, Stephanie Drimmer. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. And uh, I hope that uh, being that we've talked to you already twice this year, maybe not again this year, but I imagine we'll be talking again next year. I certainly hope so. Me too. Well, it's been great fun. Thank you so greatly for all the talent that you have and sharing it in this way with us. Well, thanks for chatting with me. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Stephanie Drimmer and Sunday Morning Magazine with Lisa Forbes. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of big hopes and big fun together. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 1069. Good morning. <laughs>